if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how's it going? Doing pretty good here, Neil. We're going to go back in history as we always do on this podcast. I'll ask David the question that's in the title, When Art Thou? And then he'll take us back to some time. I don't know what it's going to be, but always a true story, which is the fun part of this. It's all real. We don't make anything up, right, David? Not a thing. All right, so I guess I should ask the question then, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 1946, and Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the famous British hero of the Second World War, is at a party at the British Embassy in Washington, having a discussion as the guest of honor is wont to do. And a lady asks him, Mr. Churchill, what was the worst moment of the war for you? And I think that's a really interesting question. So I'm going to read you what Winston Churchill's answer was. Okay, I'm very curious. What did Winston Churchill say was the worst moment of the war for him? The most dangerous moment of the war and the one which caused me the greatest alarm was when the Japanese fleet was heading for Ceylon and the naval base there. The capture of Ceylon, the consequent control of the Indian Ocean, and the possibility at the same time of a German conquest of Egypt would have closed the ring, and the future would have been black. That's interesting, David. So many big moments in World War II that we all know about. You know, the movie Dunkirk came out recently. Um, There was also a movie about Winston Churchill, The Darkest Hour. I think we're all familiar with that. D-Day, of course, a very famous moment, like tons of movies and historical accounts of D-Day. I think of all of these moments that spring to mind that I would have guessed would have been his answer. And yet he's talking about the Indian Ocean and Ceylon. And I don't know much about it. I'm sure most people probably wouldn't have guessed that that would be his answer. So another interesting thing about that answer is that's what he said in 1946 in a sort of informal environment. But when he got around to writing his memoirs later, he didn't even mention the entire incident. And the reason for that is because his understanding of what had happened in the Indian Ocean in 1942 changed as records from the Japanese Navy became available and what had been a terrifying moment for the Prime Minister of Great Britain for very senior levels of the Allied High Command in retrospect the way they understood that changed when the information they had about it changed. It's one of those moments where something occurred that is now tremendously obscure 
And in some ways, I'm not going to say rightfully so, but in some ways it's understandable. Even Winston Churchill wouldn't have called it the worst moment of the war in, say, 1950. But it was very important to them at the time, and it helps us to understand what they felt and how they saw the world and how they saw 1942 in a way you don't get if you only study the battles that are viewed as important in retrospect. It's kind of a case of hindsight bias. Uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. we always say. And in this case, uh, it really was for Winston Churchill as his understanding evolved once he had that advantage of hindsight to look back on this incident. So maybe, David, take us back to 1942 and tell us a little bit about how the battle for Cylon looked in the moment. So the first thing to understand about this battle is that it took place in a context we've almost sort of forgotten. The start of 1942 is sort of the middle of the Second World War. In retrospect, not a lot of very big things happened, and we sort of forget now what was going on and how people felt about it at the time. Right, World War II goes on for a long time, and we tend to focus on the very beginning, the Blitzkrieg, and then the very end, D-Day, and what happened after that. But the middle kind of gets lost. So in 1942 things actually looked very bad for the Allied of 1942. What was happening? In North Africa, in the Western Desert, the British were fighting with Rommel, the famous German armored commander who, in spite of being outnumbered, kept on dramatically beating all of these British forces that came up against him. And... From their perspective, they had no reason to believe that that was going to change, you know? They were mustering another force to try and outnumber him again and face him again so that he couldn't break through. But he'd done it before. He'd beaten the odds before. And this was terrifying if you're a British officer in Egypt at the start of 1942. In Russia at the start of 1942... The German army was on its second offensive. 1941, they'd invaded Russia, charged almost to the gates of Moscow, been defeated heroically as winter closed in in a bitter series of battles, and then summer had rolled around, 1942, and the Germans were on the offensive again. Again, they're breaking through, their tanks are charging, it looks like another blitzkrieg, and again... They're charging towards this little town on the Volga called Stalingrad. And yeah, with hindsight, we know that that was a not going to go well. But at the time, if you're just looking on a map, these tanks are sweeping forward and nothing can stop them. Right. It seemed like things were going very well for the German forces. And it must have been tough in Britain, especially from Winston Churchill's perspective, where they're getting bombarded and they're sort of all alone on their little island. Exactly. And in the Pacific, you get the same thing. At the end of 1941, December 7th is 
Pearl Harbor, this out of nowhere, the Pacific goes from being peaceful and maybe even, you know, a place the British can be pulling reinforcements from in places like India that are part of the empire to suddenly there's a war on, the Americans seem to be losing, their battleships are being sunk, and then it's just campaign after campaign. Malaya, Burma, the Dutch East Indies, all of these colonial possessions are just falling to the Japanese forces who are just seizing them like they're not even making an effort. So things are looking bleak for the Allies. They're losing in Russia. They're losing in North Africa. They're losing in the Pacific. What's the importance of Ceylon to them in this moment? So the thing about Ceylon, I should mention, obviously nowadays we don't call it Ceylon. It's the island of Sri Lanka off of the south of India. The thing about Ceylon is that it is very close to the Indian coast. It's very big, but it's also small enough that it's just possible that the Japanese army could seize it. It's not like India, which is massive, and if it doesn't surrender, there's very little chance that the Japanese army can just move in and take it. It's a little bit smaller. It's just maybe doable. And of course, India at the time is still British, David, right? So this would be a foothold for Japan very close to a large British colony. Is that the issue? A large British colony that's very restive. There's the Indian National Army at this point, which is a very small group, but they're a rebel group who are fighting for the Japanese against the British with the goal of liberating India. And of course, there's famous figures like Gandhi who are anti-Japanese but also anti-British and want all colonial powers out of India. And the British are very worried if the Japanese can get a foothold, can maybe cut India off navally so that they can't send reinforcements there, then maybe they could lose India and with it the entirety of their ability to influence events in the Pacific. So what is the British plan here, David? How are they going to reinforce and make sure they defend uh, Sri Lanka? The way they view this is not a land battle. It's a naval battle. They're fighting the Japanese Navy for control of the Indian Ocean. They're not fighting the Japanese Army for control of Sri Lanka itself. And because that's how they view it, the reinforcements they want to bring in are naval forces. They want to move in warships. But they don't have a lot available, especially because two of the largest and proudest battleships of the British fleet just got sunk by Japanese aircraft carriers trying to rush forward to reinforce Singapore and ultimately India. So they need a different strategy than just rushing in more ships because they don't have enough. So what they want to do is have a fleet in being. They want to have a fleet somewhere that the Japanese will know exist so that the Japanese can't transport troops to the island, but they don't actually want to have that fleet fight with the Japanese Navy because they know they'd lose. They just want it to be there so that the Japanese are too afraid 
to bring transports to Sri Lanka. Does that make sense? It's kind of an interesting strategy, Dave. It's like the guy who looks really buff and tough and like he's going to win a fight, but, you know, really couldn't hurt a fly. So you bring him with you, you know, so that no one will, you know, intimidate you at the bar. But you really don't want to get into a fight because if you do, you're going to you're going to lose. It's more common in naval strategy than you would think. And bar fights. The famous naval strategy, Alfred Thayer Mahan, writes a lot about the power of a properly executed fleet in being. So how are the British going to properly execute this? Because I imagine it's sort of a tricky balance to pull off. Well, the first move, of course, is to move a fleet of basically whatever they can scrape up in the region into Sri Lanka, into the main port at Sri Lanka in Trincomalee. And they bring together, they've got a few battleships, they've got one aircraft carrier, they've got destroyers you know it's a credible naval fleet but it's not a very large one and then it's all about who's going to find the enemy before the enemy finds them because if the japanese raiding into the indian ocean can find the british fleet then they can use their aircraft carriers to sink it while staying out of range of the british battleships which use guns which are shorter range than aircraft have and then you know get away with it but if the british see the japanese fleet coming before it can attack then they can just keep shifting where their fleet is from point to point and evade the japanese and just look for good opportunities where the japanese do something stupid like try and bring in a transport fleet and then you know sink it Right, so they got to stay away from the main Japanese force, but still pick off a few easy pickings and get these little victories to make it look like they're ready to engage the main force, which they actually don't want to do. Exactly. This is a very tricky ploy, David. And it's made even more interesting by the British commander himself, Admiral Somerville, who wants to win a battle. He's a very aggressive admiral who doesn't just want to hole up somewhere and avoid all combat because he thinks that'll be bad for the morale of his fleet and bad for his reputation he wants to fight but obviously a fight he can win not a fight directly against the main japanese force because well not against any japanese force large enough that it's definitely going to beat him smart smart don't fight forces that are large enough they're going to beat you I'm no military strategist, but that seems like a good plan to me. I can see why this whole thing would make Churchill nervous, David. And he's got another reason to be nervous. 1942 isn't just a bad year for the Allies militarily in terms of their military strength. It's also a bad year for the British and the overall Allied intelligence Their spies just are not doing as great as they will through most of the war. In Egypt, they've actually got a very paradoxical problem. Their intelligence is too good. How can your intelligence be too good, David? So they've got Ultra, the famous code-breaking team that has broken the German secret Enigma codes and is reading Rommel's radio traffic back to his superiors in Berlin. Their problem is 
that Rommel, an ambitious general himself, looking to get more supplies out of his superiors in Berlin, is exaggerating his supply problems to try and convince his superiors to send him more supplies. But that means that reading accurately the messages that Rommel is actually sending to the German high command in Berlin is actually misleading the British commanders on the ground. So Rommel's actually running a good counterintelligence operation without even knowing it. By accident. Sometimes it's good to be lucky, lucky to be good. And in the Pacific, the British intelligence problem is the exact opposite. They don't have any spies in Japan because they weren't planning for a war with Japan. And they can't read any of the Japanese codes because, again, they weren't planning for this. They didn't have anybody working on this. And now they're trying to play catch up, but they're not ready yet. So the British also have this intelligence disadvantage going for them as well as the fact that they're just quite frankly losing the war at this point so do they do it david do they manage to pull off this tricky maneuver that really involves a lot of intelligence and counterintelligence as well so all the way from the very start of 1942 till april 1942 basically nothing happens the japanese don't move into the Indian Ocean to threaten any of this area because they've got other problems, other wars. They're attacking towards Australia. They're attacking towards the U.S. They're attacking the British possessions like Malaya and Singapore and Burma. And, you know, like they're busy, okay? So it's not until April that a Japanese fleet is assembled and heads into the Indian Ocean to see if they can challenge the British fleet stationed there. Dun, dun, dun. So what happens, David? These fleets are coming now. The Japanese are coming into the Indian Ocean. The British can't fight them, but they want to try and scare them off. So the Japanese fleet enters the Indian Ocean. And in one of the interesting parts of history, okay, the British plan is based around the fact that they think that the Japanese think that they can seize Ceylon and therefore that the Japanese want to bring an invasion force and seize Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka. Right. But the Japanese Navy, although the British don't know this and Winston Churchill in 1946 doesn't know this, the Japanese Navy have a different opinion. They looked at the army, the Japanese army, and they were like, there's no way these guys can invade Sri Lanka. It's too big. That would be a disaster. They're only going into the Indian Ocean trying to sink the British fleet. They have no intention of an invasion. And because they think that the British know that, they think that the British will want to come out and fight because there's no real loss to the British. The only thing they can lose is ships. They're not going to risk anything strategic if they come out for a fight, even one where they're outnumbered. So what we have here, David, is a failure to communicate. <laughs> the Japanese think that the British want to fight them in this naval battle. The British think this is all about capturing Ceylon. So it's really just two navies running around each other with different objectives very different objectives but still you shouldn't underestimate 
this campaign. It can seem a little bit comical in retrospect, these two navies with two completely different ideas of what is happening, but the Japanese have actually assembled a larger aircraft carrier force than they will bring to the decisive Battle of Midway, their real battle with the U.S. for control over the Pacific Ocean. This is a big Japanese fleet that is maybe not being put to the best of uses. So there is real danger here. Like, these guys are really at risk, the British fleet. This Japanese fleet is big, and therefore, if you're a British commander, you know, scary. You have to avoid it. The British strategy accidentally is the right one. They really don't want to take their ramshackle Indian Ocean fleet and try and fight the best fleet that the Japanese have because that would not go well. So the problem it would seem to me, David, is that at some point there needs to be an end game. The British can't just keep hiding forever, can they? The ocean is a big place. You can keep hiding for a long time and the Japanese can't stay in the Indian Ocean forever. The American Navy is also coming. But at the same time, the British fleet, there's only a limited number of ports that they can be in, and they are tied to ports. They can't spend all their time at sea. So the Japanese have a good chance of finding them if they can get them by surprise, if they can find the British fleet in a port and attack it by surprise. So it all comes down to whose reconnaissance aircraft are better. Will the British aircraft find the Japanese fleet in time to warn their fleet to get out and escape? Or will the Japanese aircraft determine what port the British are in first so that their aircraft carriers can launch a devastating strike quickly? David, this is tense. Like, I'm, I feel tense here. Like, these planes flying these reconnaissance missions like you said the ocean is big it can't be easy to find the other fleet and it's all going to come down to who can stay on their toes and find that other fleet first what happens so now let's go back to the dinner party in washington that we started this podcast on david you can't get me all riled up like that and then take me back to 1946 so Winston Churchill has just done his thing about how that was the worst moment of the war for him. And as it happens, there's this guy standing at the party, young Canadian up-and-comer in the Department of External Affairs. You've probably never heard of him, name of Lester B. Pearson. Okay, Canadians may have heard of him, but I'm going to guess that people outside of Canada maybe haven't. Just a guess. He's actually not important to this story particularly except for as a diplomat from Canada in Washington at the time but just for those interested he actually became prime minister of Canada in a later political career and he wore great bow ties kind of in the uh, Churchill tradition you should definitely be picturing him wearing a bow tie back to the story so Lester B. Pearson is also at this dinner party and being a Canadian diplomat he feels the need to just mention Ceylon the worst moment of the war that you're talking about the guy who found the Japanese fleet the pilot 
who was flying the aircraft that found the Japanese fleet, he was a Canadian pilot. Just wanted to mention that. And Winston Churchill stops, and I don't have his exact words, but apparently he made a stirring speech on the heroism of this pilot who had found the Japanese fleet in a big, slow Catalina flying boat and inevitably, of course, had been caught by the Japanese fighters that they had from their aircraft carriers and shot down and tragically killed, but who had, through his sacrifice, saved the British Indian Ocean fleet. So it all comes down, David, to this Canadian pilot shot down but he warned the fleet where the Japanese were so they could get away. Which is when Lester B. Pearson interjects a second time to mention, yeah, that pilot, Len Burchill, he did get shot down, but he didn't get killed. He survived the entire war after being taken prisoner by the Japanese and then horrifically mistreated in Japanese prisoner of war camps while still demonstrating dedicated devotion to the leadership of all of the Allied prisoners of war in those camps. And I know that because right now, he's my roommate. What a small world. The pilot who saved the most dangerous moment of the war for Winston Churchill is roommates with a future Canadian prime minister who just happens to be in the room with Winston Churchill. They were both living at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, which was obviously very important in 1946. Some very important military discussions were being held. It's a little early for the NATO treaty itself, but some of the important preliminary work was being done. It's not so shocking that this would all happen, but it is still pretty shocking that this would all happen. It is shocking, David, and what a interesting story about a part of the war that gets forgotten because it was maybe towards the middle of the war, didn't have as much of an impact on the end game that everyone tends to talk about, but still in the moment was very important, so much so that even in 1946, Winston Churchill thought it was the most dangerous moment of the war. After people found out that the Japanese weren't planning to land an invasion force on Ceylon. Everybody sort of said the British Indian Ocean Fleet was pretty small. If it had been sunk, that would obviously have been a tragedy, definitely for the British Indian Ocean Fleet and the thousands of guys serving on those ships wouldn't want that to happen. But it would not have been the end of the war the way that people honestly and sincerely were worried it might be in 1942. This is an event whose importance in some ways has diminished with time. But it's also just a crazy story about something that to the people who lived through it was life or death. And about the guy who flew a, you know, a flying boat, not an exciting fighter, not a morally controversial bomber, but just a boring, important task that one day became a briefly very exciting and then terrifying task in a far distant corner of the world from the little country he'd come from. I think that's worth remembering. Certainly for Len Burchill and all of the soldiers involved on both sides, 
this was the most important part of the war as everyone's personal fight is and that's why they're so important and so important to remember thanks for telling us the story david I always enjoy telling these stories, Neil. We have told a Winston Churchill story before, more a story about a Winston Churchill anecdote before. His anecdotes tend to make great podcasts. If you're interested in that one, episode number 19, The Monkey Bite, is an interesting story sort of around the World War II period and uh, what's happening in Greece at the time. And uh, if you're interested in World War II stories, we got a couple of those as well. You're going to want to listen to episode 16, The One-Eyed Sniper, because that is one of the most exciting stories I've ever heard. And of course, The Frogman of Burma in episode 22 is an interesting story. Again, more about that uh, same area of the world that we were just talking about, David. So a different front in World War II that you might not know as much about. So those are some good episodes to listen to if this story if you like this story episode 16 19 22 all good ones as they all are so please give them a listen if you like them subscribe rate the podcast we appreciate it and of course you can follow us on social media twitter instagram at when art thou on facebook at when art thou or send us an email Oh brother, when art thou at outlook.com? Our website is obrother.ca. David, I've got a quiz for you as we always like to finish the podcast on a fun note. Hit me. All right. We're going to do this day in history. So I've got a quiz about a day in history. And just, you know, randomly, David, no particular reason. I chose May 24th. A good day when many notable things have happened, certainly. Okay, I I cheated a little. It is my birthday, May 24th, so I thought we'd go with a birthday quiz here. You ready? Go for it. On May 24th in 1595, the first print catalog of an institutional library was published. This is the first time an institutional library had an actual printed out catalog. It was done by which Dutch university? Dutch university active in 1595. Wow. Perhaps the University of Leiden? You are absolutely correct. The University of Leiden Library published the first print catalog of an institutional library, 1595, on May 24th. Jumping forward in time to 1844, on May 24th, Samuel Morse sent the first telegraph message, which said what? Contents of the first telegraph message. I know the first telephone message, but it seems unlikely that the first telegraph message would be the same. I'm gonna guess... Look, everybody, I did it! Good guess. That's that's probably what I would have gone with. Uh, he wrote, What hath God wrought? Which is a sort of dark <laughs> thing to put in the first ever telegraph message. May 24th, 1844. On May 24th in 1918, Canadian question for you, Prime Minister Robert Borden passed a bill allowing women to do what? Would this be the bill that allowed women to vote in Canada? That's correct. May 24th, 1918 is when women got the vote in Canada. And then on May 24th, 1935, I've got a sports question for you. It was the first Major League night baseball game took place, David, between what two teams? 
Major League Baseball, 1935. I'm going to guess the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. Good guess indeed. It actually took place between the Cincinnati Reds, who won the game, against the Philadelphia Phillies, the first Major League night baseball game. Last question for you here, David. May 24th, 1989. This timeless classic was born. May 24th, 1989. 1989. Timeless classic. Born. Born that day. Born that day. This is a hard one. Ah. Could it be you? Well, I'm flattered you think that, David, but I was thinking of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade hit theaters May 24th, 1989. Timeless classic. Much like me. Thanks for playing along, David. Always have fun doing these quizzes, Neil. And thanks for listening. 